Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin. This week, I decided that I wanted to compile two older episodes. So I've talked about them before, but I did them about a year apart, which was my bad because I meant to do it sooner, or excuse me, with less time in between each episode. But I wanted to compile all four of the um, Words Mean Things diaspora parts one through four that I created, but parts one and two were already like over an hour. So this week I'm going to release parts one and two together so you'll hear two intros, right? So you'll hear like the intro music. Um, That is the music you just heard at the beginning of this episode. Um, It's some live music that I had heard in Cuba. So I am, you'll know that it transitions over based on that. So you'll hear that at the start of each of those episodes. And then next week, I will plan to release parts three and four compiled together. That makes it easier because that way, if you were really interested in it, you don't have to search as far back to find the episodes. And then I guess what I'll plan to do sometime in the next few months is compile all four together in case you do want to hear them all four, which would probably be a little over two hours. And if you liked, you know, a longer podcast or you wanted to drive with it or something like that. But I just wanted to do an intro just to explain that that's what was going on because some of the things that I may have mentioned have been updated, or if I mentioned current events at the time, going back to 2021, when I did part one from this series, then it would might confuse you because now we're two years down the line. So everyone enjoy this week's compilation of the past two episodes, Diaspora's parts one and two, Words Mean Things. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Happy Hour History. Today, I wanted to talk about the African diaspora throughout the Americas and just what diasporic means in general. So we may also have time to cover the Asian diaspora in the Americas, but depending on how long this goes, um, I might add it to another episode. First, it's probably best to define some words and themes here as they're not always used outside of the history or social science fields. So diaspora has a few definitions, but the one that fits best for us is, quote, any group migration or flight from a country or region, unquote. Now, in this case, we mean the forced movement of these people, which is why it's also important not to lump descendants of the diaspora as immigrants in the way that we'll be discussing today. Africans as a continental group made up of various cultures and, you know, groups within did not willingly come to the Americas to be enslaved. So they are not immigrants. Um, They were migrated But the language matters here as they don't mean the same thing. And likewise, Asians as a continental group made up of various cultures and groups within did not always willingly come to the Americas to be enslaved or, you know, even to work. Right. So those groups are also not immigrants, the ones who were forcibly moved. And so, again, they were migrated, but they did not willingly do so. Now, people who volunteer to be indentured servants, that would be 
those would be immigrants because they made a conscious decision. They knew what they were getting into, so to speak, with regard to their labor terms. And so those people would be considered immigrants. They made the choice themselves and made the arrangements themselves to get to another country. So when you hear someone mention diasporic studies in the Americas, it's usually the study of people who were forcibly migrated to and throughout the Americas. So this can also include indigenous people who were moved to new territories and throughout the Caribbean to displace them from where their people were, you know, headquartered located in. Because they did that also. And the United States would sometimes move different native groups into the Caribbean so that they couldn't get back home, right? Because they would be stranded on another island. So within the diaspora in the Americas, we have different groups, most of which I already mentioned. We have native indigenous folks, African folks, Asians, and European groups that are part of that. These four continents of people lived among each other throughout the American colonies. And I guess I should say that They lived amongst each other well before 1492, right? People had been trading intercontinentally for centuries. (laughs) Um, So it wasn't a new concept that they lived together in the Americas. It's just that it it was on much different terms. So when I say American colonies here, I mean English, Spanish, French, Dutch, Portuguese controlled islands, countries, and territories, those are all being considered American colonies when I speak about it here because the Western Hemisphere was known as, um, you know, the New World or America. So I don't just mean the United States unless I specifically say so. So despite having less than full legal status throughout the history of this hemisphere, the oppressed left their cultural imprint and their literal DNA in those countries still today. There are Chinese-descended Jamaicans who've lived in Jamaica for centuries. There are Black-descended Peruvians or you know African-descended Peruvians who've been there for centuries. There's Filipinos that were in Chile, right? I mean, it goes on and on. Indigenous-descended people throughout the Americas, along with the aforementioned groups, they're still met with the lack of representation about their cultural existence, as well as their influence on the culture. And oftentimes they don't have equal access to education, jobs, and other things that are meant to provide class stability and access to them as citizens of that country, especially as the descendants of people who were enslaved and displaced centuries before present day. So while we have a more global society where information, even misinformation, unfortunately, can be rapidly spread, I think part of the confusion about these things is because often people do not understand the difference between nationality, race, and ethnicity. Especially when it comes to discussions of lack of representation, oftentimes the black and indigenous descended peoples are excluded. Now, like I said, there are Asian descended people from these countries that also do not get representation, but their numbers in the population aren't generally as large. So let's define the big three that people tend to get confused here in the United States and probably elsewhere also, but those are nationality, ethnicity, and race. So nationality is defined as the country that you were born in, Ethnicity is defined as the social group that shares a common and distinctive culture, region, or language. 
And I should pause real quick to say in the United States, there are only two ethnic groups to choose from for survey purposes. There is Hispanic Latino or non-Hispanic Latino. So race is generally determined by phenotype, which is determined by having common physical characteristics or traits that are commonly found within a group of people. So let's use some people to explain how these things are easily conflated and how they are defined by the individual, but more so by the people who are observing us at any given time. For myself, both of my parents were born in the United States. My mom was born in Michigan. My dad was born in New York. My family has been in the United States since the 1700s. That's as far back as the records that we can find. So we are from, you know, the English colony United States. That's important for my purpose in this example. I, I personally also have typical traits that are found within the black racial group. I have brown skin, highly textured hair, and dark colored eyes. So my nationality is Americans because I was born in the United States. My nationality is not African-American. I was not born in continental Africa. It would be just American. My ethnicity is non-Hispanic because myself nor my family have any ties to a country that was formerly occupied by Spain or Portugal. My race is black because of my phenotype. So let's use somebody else. Diana de los Santos, also known as Amara La Negra, is a Afro-Dominican um, performer. She does Latin music. She was born in Miami. So her nationality is American. Her family is from the Dominican Republic. I believe both of her parents are from the Dominican Republic. So she's ethnically Hispanic Latino. That's her ethnicity. And her race is black. And you can, you know, Google image any of these people and, you know, get an understanding of what I'm talking about. But the difference between her and I, in this case, is our ethnicity. She's Afro-Latina. I am not. She has ties to a Latin American country. I do not. Let's use um, a different person. So let's use Cameron Diaz. She was born in San Diego. So her nationality is American. Her family has ties to Cuba. So her ethnicity is Hispanic Latino and her race is white. She has the looks that are commonly found among people from Europe. A person of Chinese ancestry who's born in Peru, for example, their nationality is Peruvian. They're born in Peru. Their ethnicity is Hispanic Latino and their race would be Asian. Let's see. Now, um, someone who's born within Latin America but was not born in a Spanish or Portuguese colony is not Latinx. So examples of that would be countries like Guyana, Jamaica, Haiti. Despite the fact that you know, even for Haiti, it's on part of the same island as the Dominican Republic, which is considered a Latin country, Haiti was occupied by France. The language of the modern day language of Haiti is not Spanish. It's not the language in Jamaica or Guyana, the, all those, you know, in Jamaica and Guyana, it's English. And like I said, in Haiti, it was French. So I hope that makes sense for the example. Though they are in the same region, right, of the Caribbean slash Latin America, those are not considered Latin countries. And so the people from there would not be considered Latinx. Let's say a person, let's say a Chinese person, is born in South Africa and immigrates to the United States, okay? Their race is Asian. 
their ethnicity is non-Hispanic Latino, but their nationality would be African American because they migrated to America from an African country. I think part of the reason it's often conflated is because when you hear people say Asian American or African American to describe someone's race, well, you often do hear them use those terms to describe someone's race, but the language can be applied to nationality for those people who are immigrants. I've also seen people use the term African-American to describe black people in Brazil or black people in Mexico, because oftentimes in this country, using the term African-American is the you know politically correct way to describe black people or to say that someone is black. Some people want to be called African-American. Some people, you know, I've noticed that a lot of people tend to use African-American when they're, you know, describing someone's race. So... However, as non-Americans, you can't use that, right? If someone is a non-American, because in this case, like I said, if they're from Brazil, they're not necessarily African-American, they're Afro-Brazilian because they're black from Brazil. Or if they're black from Mexico, they would be Afro-Mexican. So let's talk about the denial of those labels, because like I said, it's not generally how you identify yourself. It's also how others see you in the moment that you come into their consciousness, So even if Cameron Diaz did not consider, I don't know if she considered herself, but even if she didn't consider herself white, she is still white. That's not up to her. She has the traits associated with whiteness. She has yellow hair. She has blue eyes. She's got very light skin. Thus, her experience in wherever she occupies, especially in the United States, will be one that people give to white people. And furthermore, no matter where she goes, her experience will be one that people choose to treat someone who is a white person. Now, that could be a positive, neutral, or negative experience, depending on where she is at any given time. But like I said, it also depends on where she is by region or by country. Now, she might say, I'm not white, but everyone who looks at her without her speaking will assume that she is. So she is. If I didn't consider myself black, which I would never, but I've met plenty of black people who take issue with being labeled as such because of how it is weaponized and degraded in our society, It would not change the fact that I sit firmly in that phenotypic racial group. People will treat me how they have decided that I should be treated because they assign me as black. So let's discuss how this matters when you travel. When I travel, I'm still black, but I'm an American and I have a U.S. passport and I also speak English. So that can sometimes get me access to certain spaces because of the positive stereotype that I have money to spend wherever I am when I'm not in the United States. And, you know, obviously as a black American, I don't always occupy those privileges in my own country, but I at some times have experienced them abroad. Now, I have been in Latin countries where people have come up to me assuming that I speak Spanish or Portuguese because I look like a large part of their population. They don't assume until I speak that I'm not from there, that I'm not one of them or can't understand them, right? Like I said, until I'm speaking in English or if I start speaking another language and claim to be from somewhere else, they assume that I'm one of them. I've met people who were very visibly black, but wanted to say, oh, I'm not black, I'm Dominican, or oh, I'm not black, I'm Panamanian. And that's an example of when people don't understand the definitions of the terms, The deniability 
that deniability of existence is causing a rift among populations, I think, that occupy spaces of oppression, even if not all spaces of oppression. Someone who's a lighter complected Salvadoran who maybe has blue eyes and brown hair is still going to get preferential treatment and may not be considered white in their country, but may be seen as white in the United States. Someone who comes to mind who is, you know, um, an actress is Alexis Bledel, and she considers herself to be a Latina because she lived in, I believe it was South America, but she still phenotypically appears white, right? That's important. She can't deny that she benefits from that, even if she doesn't mean to, because she didn't choose her DNA. Part of the discussion surrounding the lack of Afro-Latinx representation in the production that just came out of In the Heights, I think it was on Netflix, supposed to be about Washington Heights in New York, was that there was a lack of dark-skinned Afro-Latinx as central figures, not just as background props. And I saw an interview where Gina Torres, an Afro-Latinx actress, said that she learned pretty early on in her career when she was trying to get cast for roles that directors wanted their Latinx actresses to look Italian. Now, if you Google image her, it's Torres with an S at the end. So Gina exists in a world where she is both a black woman and as a Latina. But she was talking about how she rarely ever would get chosen to play Latinas, even though she's from that ethnic group and grew up in that culture. Part of being a descendant of the diaspora is lineage. So for black people throughout the hemisphere, the commonality is the experience of our ancestors having been enslaved. Now, we know that not all blacks in the U.S., nor Mexico, nor South America, nor the Caribbean, etc., were always slaves because they could and did get their freedom prior to the mid-17th century. Indentured servants, for example, so they had termed labor, just like, you know, Europeans, and they were freed afterwards, or they were given their freedom, they bought their freedom, etc. Most of the people were enslaved. Most of the African-descended people from the this hemisphere were enslaved as the numbers of their forced migration increased after 1650 and they were barred from getting freedom as easily as they had been able to prior. So in the United States, being black is considered a detriment because of the lineage of our enslaved ancestors, as well as propaganda by the dominant group, which made being blacks be seen as negative as well as a death sentence, really. And even if not all were enslaved, there's a shared experience of segregation based on race. So when Afro-Latinx people are left out of opportunities that give them the chance to showcase the diversity of that ethnic group, it is rooted in erasure. The lineage of their likely enslaved ancestors is how modern day people maintain oppression among a racial group within their ethnic group. And I know apologies were issued on behalf of the people who were in charge and made decisions surrounding the production of In the Heights that just came out, but it's 2021 and these conversations are not new at all. They've been around for many, many decades and literal centuries. So a lot of these people have to stop quote listening so much and start actually acting on it and 
doing things ahead of time, not after they've already made their production, because it doesn't matter, like it's already done. So in this case, the people who are the products of mixing in the hemisphere are positioning themselves as the gatekeepers of their culture, identity, and storytelling, which is racist, even if they don't consider themselves to be white. Even if we look at Lin-Manuel Miranda, for example, he's a very fair-complected Latin man, Okay, so he still has privileges within that because of his phenotype, whether he wants to admit it, accept it or not. And what I also meant by my previous statement is that typically when people are calling for, you know, actors or actresses who are supposed to be depicting Latinx people, Latinx culture, they are traditionally looking for people who are pretty light complected or, you know, very, very light brown. So that's what I meant by mixing, right? People who are Spanish and indigenous descended, but lean more toward their European ancestry, which would give them the lighter hair color, the lighter eye color, the lighter skin color, more so than they mean for people who are are firmly indigenous without much mixing. So people who look like women like Yelitsa Aparicio, people who are identifiably from indigenous native societies within Latin America, nor do they mean people who sit firmly within the phenotype of blackness, someone like Diana de los Santos, for example, which is who is a Marla Negra. And that's a direct reason why people here in this country expect Latinos to always look like J-Lo or Shakira, not, you know, a wide range of people. Even within the United States, for those of us who are black descendants of slaves in this country, the erasure is also experienced, which is why a lot of people specifically um, denote ourselves as descendants of slaves, right? Because there are things that we were left out of despite our lineage and the things that our families had to go through for centuries and decades that other people were able to come over and benefit from because they were racially considered black, but did not like, I don't want to use the term earn, but didn't put in that work, weren't affected by those things for so long. So those gains that were supposed to be for black people, especially in the 70s and before it was eradicated, and I believe in the 80s, it was meant for the black descendants of slaves, the very people who had gone through enslavement in this country, Jim Crow segregation in this country, Obviously, like unfair lynching, unfair housing practices, racial segregation, being forced to live in, you know, areas that became ghettos because they did not have funding, all of that. So it wouldn't. So the lineage is important and it wouldn't be right to not highlight that as part of this podcast. And I also want to say that there are people who share common phenotypes associated with blackness who are not technically black in the way that we define it. So there are people from India or the Philippines, for example, to name a few, who have black phenotypic characteristics. They have dark skin, dark eyes, textured hair, but it's not until they speak or share aspects of their culture, maybe that would be like food, clothing, language, etc., that you know that they're not black, black, the way we often define it, which in this country would mean that you are um, a black American. So like I said, the diaspora is a really broad topic, but it also does include the Asian diaspora throughout the Americas. So I guess the one I'll talk about today is the Chinese diaspora. So guano was one of the principal exports 
from the Pacific coastal regions of the Americas, but it was very hard to maintain a steady supply of workers who were willing to endure the labor as well as the disagreeable odor from the bird excrement because guano is bird poop. So whole mountains of it were produced and it's potential as a fertilizer because of its nitrous chemistry couldn't be ignored. So the Spanish crown began enslaving Chinese people to mine those guano-rich landscapes because they could not keep workers who wanted to be there. Daily quotas were imposed on laborers, and there were also punishments for failure to meet those daily, like, Quota. So how many pounds of bird excrement they were supposed to mine. So an estimated 100,000 Chinese died during these labor efforts and suicide was very common. So in addition to harvesting guano on the Pacific side, the Chinese were also enslaved for agricultural pursuits in the Caribbean in places like Jamaica and Cuba. So while the Chinese labor and enslavement is not as commonly discussed in a traditional lecture about the transatlantic trade, they worked alongside enslaved Africans and indigenous peoples throughout the American hemisphere. So there's increasing literature about the role of Asian labor in conjunction with African and indigenous stories throughout the Americas. It's not a far stretch to imagine that these people also ran away and were adopted into free societies that sprang up around the hemisphere. The first Chinatown in Peru, um, Bairro Chino, was established in the 1850s in Lima, just to give you an example. So the Chinese populations of Central and South America are still very much present today with their descendants included in the populations of the large cities throughout the continent. And a large reason, well, a lot of what would happen is Chinese people would be kidnapped back in China, especially children, and brought to the Americas for purposes of enslavement. So we use the term kidnapped today. I think I may have said this in a previous podcast, but the term used to be shanghaied. That was the term that they used for kidnapping um, because it was so common to, you know, steal Chinese laborers, um, either under false pretenses for the purposes of coming to the Americas, to, you know, El Dorado to get rich, to, you know, go back home and be able to establish wealth just like the Spanish wanted to just like a lot of people wanted to do Um, and they may have been willing to go into a contract labor agreement to be indentured servants but upon arriving into the Americas there was no consulate or ambassadors to prevent them from being sold into chattel slavery and so that's exactly what happened to many of those people throughout the hemisphere especially in the Caribbean and South America. Interestingly enough Manila was the trade port that would the ships would typically go to before they came across the Pacific to the Americas. So Filipinos are also part of that diaspora. Even though they were not always targeted in the same way Chinese people were, Filipinos were also still brought as chattel laborers into the Americas, in South America, throughout the hemisphere, by by virtue of their not being white. So when you hear people discuss which people were considered enslavable, anybody who was not European was considered enslavable. And I usually show this documentary in my classes and One of the distinctions made is that, oh, well, Christians didn't enslave other Christians. So one of the, what do you say? One of the um, excuses, I guess, justifications is a better word, that a lot of the Catholics and Christian groups used to justify enslaving people was that they were not Christian or Catholic or even um, Muslim 
because that was happening on the other half of the African continent. I don't, I'm not a historian of that, so I'd have to look more into that, but it is part of it. People would say that, you know, these people weren't the same religion as them, so they were enslavable, but that is an excuse because there were, especially when we're talking about Christianity, there were people who were Christians within continental Africa prior to 1492. So that is just a convenient excuse that is given because most people don't really learn African history prior to colonization. So prior to the late 15th century. And so, you know, people are able to just go along with that crap narrative that actually is not true at all. (laughs) So let's see, books and other sources. So One book that I highly recommend if you're interested on this topic would be Africans to Spanish America, which is by Sherman K. Bryant, as well as some other historians. And there are two pretty good documentaries. So one of, actually, I'm sorry, another book, not another documentary, another book is 1493, which was written by Charles C. Mann. I really love that book. There's also 1491, but I haven't finished reading it, so I don't want to recommend it yet but um, a great documentary to watch is the black in latin america series that was done by pbs and hosted by henry lewis gates jr because that documentary really talks about the shared culture throughout the latin countries whether they be mainland spanish territories or caribbean territories because you have the same groups of africans who are being displaced in those countries and so a lot of the same foods Well, a lot of these countries have the same foods. They're just called something different. Or they may have slight variances for how they say their words based on, you know, the influence of non-Spanish languages on, you know, at the time. There are also dances that were created, which is why I mentioned the musical. I mean, I'm considering it a musical, but the production in the Heights that just came out is because it's a musical that is supposed to be highlighting Latinx culture, but a lot of aspects of Latinx culture are rooted in African culture, right? The Spanish were not doing their own work. (laughs) 95% of the indigenous people died by what, the er like the mid 1500s, like 95% of them had died off. So even if you want to think logically regarding the numbers, who would be left to establish the culture? The same people who were forced to cook, right? You're thinking about food. That's a part of culture. The people who are forced to make the food are infusing what the colonizers want to eat with what they have locally and what they know how to do from back home. So same thing with the dancing. If you're forcing a group of people to be the entertainment, they're creating the dances. They're using drums. Drums are an African thing. So (laughs) these are this is why it's also so nuanced that you have a musical that's about an ethnic group, but you actively leave out the the people who look like firmly the descendants of the people who created the very culture that you're highlighting. So I'm not going to get worked up because I'm keeping it calm. It's still summer. We still good. So I'm going to go ahead and sign off of this podcast. But like I said, I encourage you to watch documentaries about this to follow Afro-Latinx historians and commentators. Get familiar with the history of these areas because it's very important. And like I said, make sure that when you're using the terms nationality, race, ethnicity, that you know what the differences are and that you hold people accountable 
to know what the differences are because it's very nuanced and it is very important. And like I said, lineage is also a large part of that. I don't think I have to define lineage, right? But I kind of did, I guess, even though I didn't really mean to in the beginning. So those four things are very, very important in understanding the complaints that these people still have about how they are misrepresented, underrepresented, and downright excluded from aspects of their culture. Because none of us just identifies in one way. We have many different things that make up who we are, either by self-identifying or as other people identifying us. And all of those things are valid. They can and do coexist at the same time, whether people want to acknowledge it or not. So I will see you on the next podcast. Have a great day. Bye. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Happier History. I'm your host, Professor Harpin. Today, I wanted to talk about more about the diaspora in the New World and its effect on how we classify people nationally, ethnically, and racially. So sort of picking back, I know it's been a while since I did the first one. It was called Words Mean Things Diaspora Part 1 because I knew I had more to talk about, but I didn't. I published it quite a few months ago. So just to refresh, um, the reason I called it words mean things the first time is because nationality, ethnicity, and race all have their own definitions. And in the first podcast, I went over what the definitions are between the three. Um, and what I'll refresh you by saying now is that a lot of people, especially in the U.S., and I don't know if it's something that happens other places as much, but in the United States, we often conflate the three words and use them interchangeably, which causes a lot of confusion surrounding how people classify themselves, how people are classified by others, and how we relate and share information about who it is we're talking about when we're talking about a specific group of people. So I guess I should go over the definitions again. So the definition of nationality is the country that you're born in. Um, Or it could be the country that you're currently living in, which in some cases means people are going to have hyphenates um, between two different countries. So generally speaking, I guess I'll save that. Okay, so ethnic Ethnicity. So the definition of ethnicity is what larger subset culture group do you belong to? So what cultural customs do you have? That's how we define ethnicity. And then we define race in this country by your physiological characteristics or your physical characteristics, I guess. Um, And if those are commonly found within a group of people who share a similar racial makeup. So just to, I guess, elaborate a little bit more. So what I meant by multi-hyphenate is that, you know, somebody like myself who was born in America, my, in the United States, right? Because we know that America is a continent and America is a supercontinent. So, but generally the, you know, when you hear the term America referred to as a nation, you, you know, it's talking about the United States. So for people born in the United States, our nationality is American, period. It's not 
um, hyphenated at all because we weren't born anywhere else. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, wouldn't you be considered African-American? No, not for nationality. So for ethnicity, in this country, we only have two ethnic classifications. You're either Hispanic slash Latino or non-Hispanic slash Latino. Um, And for myself, I am a non-Hispanic Latino or Latinx Latino. I'm not Latin culturally, so I would be in the non-Latinx group. Racially speaking, I'm black. I, my physical characteristics firmly are and co- are firmly within the black sphere of like how we identify black people in this country. And my traits are found within a wide range of people who are also black. So that's going to be things like skin color, obviously, hair texture. Um, it could be things like build, it could be things like, I mean, like physical build, just different things. But most of the times it gets relegated to things like eye color, skin color, hair texture, um, lips, nose, things like that. And one of the books that I recommended that you read in the first episode I did about this was The Jim Crow Guide to the USA, written by Stetson Kennedy, because it really is a great analysis of the Jim Crow ways in which people were identified by race and how each state quantified that and how they would classify people. And I was telling you all in the first episode that because these three words are used interchangeably in the United States, it does make it very difficult to determine um, which group you're talking about. So for example, oftentimes in this country, you hear the term Latinx or Latino, Hispanic, to mean a, a racial group of people. So you may see a demographic breakdown to say, oh, well, how does the, you know, what is the economic status spectrum amongst Hispanic Latinos, or what is the incarceration, what's the result of the prison industrial complex or the impact of the prison industrial complex on the Hispanic or Latino group, or how many people in this city or in this country are Hispanic Latino. But the problem is that that's an ethnicity, it's not a racial group. And so because it's an ethnicity, you can't, those aren't really true statistics, right? It's a cultural group. So within the Latin cultural group, within the Latinx cultural group, you have different races of people. You have indigenous people who are Latinx. You have white people who are Latinx. You have black people who are Latinx. You have Asian people who are Latinx, right? Because it's not a race, That's also very problematic when we look at the way that group is represented. And I did kind of cover this in the first podcast I did about this, but I talked about Gina Torres, who is a black Latina actress. And even though, again, ethnically, she's a Latina. So she grew up in that culture. She, you know, she's, her culture is Latin. Her phenotype sits within the black phenotype. She is easily identified as a black woman. The problem is that when she would go up for roles um, that called for a Latina actress, she would not be picked because they were, even though she's from that culture, they were looking for someone with a white phenotype, right? And even today, when you look at actresses who are cast in you know Latin American countries, they don't tend to pick women who are black descended Latinas 
or women who are indigenous descended Latinas. They are going for the ones who are more what would be considered white Hispanic Latinas. So people who look like Jennifer Lopez, people who look like I can't even say her name. Some of you know how I feel about this woman, but you know, Gina Rodriguez, like people who look like, you know, who are more like white leaning. And the reason I don't like Gina Rodriguez is because she does and says a lot of things that are anti-black. And so it's just further proof again that, you know, again, like that, that people of color umbrella is not beneficial to black people because many people of color are anti-black. And that kind of goes with what we're going to talk about today within this second part of to the podcast is because the, the anti-blackness and anti-indigenous sentiment began centuries ago. And of course it could be argued, and it's a very valid point that it had, it was started at its impetus, right? In the beginning, in the 15th century, when the Spanish and the Portuguese, when mostly the Spanish colonized the Americas, North, Central, and South, and the Caribbean, they were, of course, going to position themselves as the smartest, the brightest, the most courageous, etc. Now, that had long-lasting effects on the hemisphere because, you know, it's. I want to re- say again, I did in the first one, Spanish people are, Spain is in Europe, so Spanish people are white, that's very important because sometimes when you hear people talk and it's interesting, like even amongst people who are, you know, within the Latin ethnic group and they say things like, oh, well, you know, I'm Spanish, I'm Spanish or, you know, I'm a Spanish girl, I'm a Spanish guy. It's like, no, you're not. Like you're a descendant of the people who they colonized, sis. You know what I mean? Like you're not them. And that's why when you go to Spain and you speak your dialect of Spanish, they treat you like crap, right? Because they know that it's not really them. So because the Spanish were going into the new world and positioning themselves in the power, excuse me, in the positions of power and authority, they also were going to position their classifications, the jobs, the best land, you know, what's considered attractive, what's considered beautiful, what's considered ugly, what's, you know, um, I don't know, what types of just everything, everything that they created in society is going to be from their perspective back home in Spain. So everything that they are is now the new, it's the new upper echelon and it's what everyone else should aspire to. So that had very, very lasting effects. And the way that people in the New World classified the mixed race people that came out of these, you know, unions, because there were people who did, were legally allowed to marry and procreate outside of their race, even if they were being discouraged because of their position or because of, you know, issues of, you know, pure blood when it comes to Spanish lineages and keeping track of all that it did often happen that people were mixed race and so and even for the people who weren't mixed race the way that they're going to be classified in society is up to the people who are in power which is going to be the white europeans from spain so when you look at the types of things that they would call people and how they would classify them, it's important for us to note that these things were part of your public record. So when you were born, your race was recorded. When you were baptized, your race and the races of your godparents were also recorded. This is something that followed you 
for the rest of your life in the in the colonial era in the new world and colonial era meaning you know the 17th 18th 19th centuries so when it comes to how people were classified as people become more mixed in the classifications would get more and more, it would be more interpreted as rude, right? It would be ruder as you mixed in more. So people who were half Spanish and half native, or as they would have called it, like Indian, they were considered mestizos. Now, a lot of people have heard that term. Some people have reclaimed the term mestizo. A lot of the people who, again, like I said, who represent the ethnic Latin community tend to be people who would have been classified as mestizos. So, you know, they, you can tell that they're not like fully European, um, that they're like a, a mix of indigenous and, you know, white Spanish blood. Now, and even under them, like, because again, this is a top-down system. So at the top, like I said, the Spanish are organizing a system in which they are seen as the supreme. So to be classified as Spanish, or at that time, they would, of course, they would have called it Espanol or Española. That's the best racial classification that you can have because it means that they can trace you all the way back to Spain. And yes, I mean all the way back. So when you again, when you're born, when you're baptized, all these things are a matter of public record. So no matter where you went, you could show who you were, who your parents, your grandparents, your godparents, your great grandparents, like everybody all the way back that they were from Spain. Underneath them is going to be the people who are mestizo. So those are, like I said, people who are half Spanish, half native. Under them are the people who are... I guess it'd be like one third native and then two thirds Spanish. And then because it like this is literally like, well, I guess it would be a quarter, huh? Maybe for Gekka for Castizo, which should have been a quarter native and three quarters Spanish. Yeah. So like I said, this is a laddered system and the people who were underneath them would of course been the people who were mixed in now with African and natives. So those would be called Zambos or Zamba, right? Because we know this is a a gendered language. Even further down underneath that is going to be people who are, well, not that it would have been underneath necessarily, because of course, like an African mixing, someone who's African and European is going to be higher than someone who's African and indigenous, right? Because the Europeanists get you more points, if you will, on their like laddered system. So the people who are half Spanish, half African would have been classified as mulatos or mulata. And then, you know, it just keeps going down. Now, the more people who, the more mixing you have within the family. So when you start getting into lineages where someone has five parts Spanish, three parts African, and like two parts um, native Indian, like that person's going to be classified as a Hibaro. Like that's their classification that's on their birth certificate, that's on their, that's on their baptism record that follows them wherever they go. Somebody who has, let's see, like a 16 parts Spanish, 13 parts African, four parts native indigenous like they're going to be classified legally like their legal classification is no te entiendo so i don't understand 
That's what they're classified as. It says on their birth certificate that their race is I don't understand. <laughs> so like I said, like the more mixing you get in, the more like that blood quantum is being added up, the ruder they get with how they're classifying people. And people who, some of the people who were at the bottom would have been people who were considered torn atrás. So that's someone who's 16 parts Spanish, 13 parts African. Um, I guess it would be five or six parts, six parts Native Indian, Native American, Native Indigenous. So that translates to a complete step back. Now, again, this is from the point of view of the Spanish. So from their point of view, once you have all of that ethnic DNA, right, you have multiple European grandparents, multiple indigenous grandparents, multiple African parentage grandparents, they don't know what you're going to look like. Because like I mentioned in the first podcast, it's not just about how you classify yourself, but how other people classify you. And that's what we call today phenotype. So in many ways, the new world was a pigmentocracy. Pigment, meaning like, you know, it was based on how you looked. And even though people may not know what you're going to look like, because if you're somebody who is considered um, a complete step back, you may have, you know, even though you know you may have more technically a couple more Spanish parentage than African parentage, you may come out looking firmly within the phenotype of blackness of Africans, right? So dark skin textured hair, dark eyes, right? Things like that. And even though you're someone, again, who's a Tornatross who only has six parts native indigenous, you may come out looking firmly with like a native indigenous person. Most of us know, hopefully, you know, that not all mixed people look mixed. Some of them don't look mixed at all. They lean more toward one phenotype. They're not as racially ambiguous. And the same thing happened in this time period, in the 17th and 18th centuries, which is why they documented it on your birth certificate. The reason that they documented it is because they understood that, especially with you know the people who are mestizos, castizos, mulatos, etc., they recognize that the le- like the less mixing you have, there's more of a potential that you can pass as Spanish or what we would call in the U.S. pass as white. It's the same idea because, again, Spanish people are white. Like They want to make sure that the people who are European whites are not going to be confused with anybody else. And the only way that they can really do that in the new world is to make sure that they have everything written down on paper and have a system in which you have to prove that you are or are not certain things in order to function in order to function in society. So, like I said, because interracial marriage, interracial sex was legal in the new world, especially once you were free, right? People could do what they wanted to do. So all the church and the state wanted to do, the church meaning the Catholic church and the state meaning, you know, the Spanish state, quote unquote, through the local governments of their colonies in Peru, Venezuela, Chile, Argentina, Colombia, Mexico, Puerto Rico, etc., Cuba, 
they wanted to make sure that they could say, okay, yeah, you can do what you want to do, but we always have a record of what it is you're doing. And the in the racial classifications that people got made or broke the way that they were able to maneuver in society. So certain jobs they could not apply for if they weren't high enough on that social, on that um, racial ladder, right? Because it's also important. I know I said it interchangeably there, but that's important because it really was like that. Like your race was inextricably, inextricably tied to your class, period. So you did have people in the 17th century who were able to, the early 17th century, who were enslaved as Africans and were able to buy their freedom um, while they were in the new world. You know, they would have Sundays off. They were able to make their own personal money and keep it. They didn't have to turn that money over to their masters and they would buy their freedom. So you did have wealthy black people. You did have um, business owners who were black etc. But by 1650, so the middle of the 17th century, they stopped that from happening. Because once they decided that their society was going to function as a racial caste system, they can't allow people who are not white to buy into whiteness, if that makes sense. So a really, really good book about this is actually purchasing whiteness. I may have mentioned this in the first podcast, but it's purchasing whiteness by Ann Twinnum. It's a really great book. And she discusses that, you know, in the book that you had many people who would buy certificates of whiteness. And it's not that they wanted And the analysis of that is that it's not that they wanted to be white, right? It's that they wanted the social mobility and access for themselves and their children. They wanted to be able to go to get a formal education. They wanted their children to be able to get a government job or a middle, what we would consider today a middle class stable job. They wanted to make sure that they could live anywhere they wanted to live. They wanted to have basic human rights in their society without race being a barrier to that. And by the middle of the 17th century, it was clear that race was going to be a barrier to that. So by making sure that they were able to secure sometimes higher positions or buy into higher positions, it gave them the access that came with that. It's also very important to note that they weren't asking the local governments, you know, like I mentioned all these Latin American colonies right, in the countries we know today, they weren't asking those local governments for these certificates of whiteness that they were purchasing. They were asking the state, meaning that not the state of, you know, Venezuela or the state of Colombia. They were asking, I'm sorry, those are countries. (laughs) Oh my God. But I meant that they, I know they're countries, but they weren't asking the state governments within those countries. They were asking like the capital S state, um, meaning like they were asking the Spanish court and the Spanish system to grant them these certificates of whiteness. And so they would mail the money to Spain and in within Spain, they would mail them back the certificate of whiteness. And then they would take those certificates with them to apply for jobs, to apply for, you know, uh, school systems, educational programs, et cetera, to have more access than they were able to before. Now, the next question may be like, well, did that extend to their kids? No. 
This is very much a money-making system for the Spanish crown. So this is going to be to the chagrin of the people who are the criollos or what we would call creoles. And that's another word, again, that gets used interchangeably depending on where you are, what century you're in, what country you're in, etc. But at this time, creoles were people who were born in the new world, but whose families were born out in the old world. So technically speaking, sometimes when you hear people talking about the difference between the enslaved who were brought, who were enslaved back in Africa and then brought to the continental Americas, they refer to the ones who were born, the next generation who was born in the Americas as Creole slaves. It doesn't mean that they're mixed. It means that they were born in the Americas, like they're children of the Americas. And also Spanish people who had their children who were born in the New World, those children are also considered Creoles. So being classified as a full-blooded Spanish person from Spain puts you higher up on that ladder than being a full-blooded Spanish person who was born in the colonies, but whose parents were born in Spain. And that's like one of those like internal ladders, like Because the idea is that, yes, you're a full-blooded Spanish person, but, you know, you may have an inclination toward, you know, these people who you grew up around, right? These indigenous people, these black people, these mixed-race people. You might give them more concessions than we would because, like, they're your countrymen, right? Because you were born in this country and they were born in this country. That's their ideology at that time, which is really interesting that they considered that to be an allying thing. But of course, for most of the Creoles or the Criollos who were Spanish Creoles, they didn't feel that way. They most certainly wanted to maintain that Spanish supremacy, that white supremacy, because they benefited from it. Like racially speaking, they are that group. There's just the very small caveat of them having being born in the colony. So technically being considered Creoles. And that's what I meant in the first podcast when I was talking about this, when I was talking about gatekeeping, right? How many people within the ethnic group of Latinx gatekeep who's allowed to be seen and represent part of that group. Even within that group, a lot of the people who are not represented are still indigenous and black and even Asian people who are Latinx, okay? So even though... The people who are the gatekeepers of that of that ethnic cultural group say that they're being oppressed, which no one, I'm not saying that they're not, but they have become the oppressors to the black, indigenous, and Asian people of Latin culture who don't get any airtime at all, right? People like Gina Torres, like I just mentioned. So... That's really interesting. And the same thing happened in the governments when the Spanish left. Now, when the Spanish left were expelled from, you know, the Americas with the revolutionary movements throughout Latin American countries and they reclaimed their independence. The people who were left there in the countries still maintained the same ideology of Spanish supremacy. And so the way that they treated the indigenous and black descended people who were around them was still very poorly. Because again, these were the people who were often the criollos, 
you had people who were African and indigenous descended as well, but the people who now position themselves as the authority are the people who are still the descendants of the people who colonized the first time they were just born in the Americas. And the people who they put in power since then, even through today in most of these countries, they're still the descendants of the original people who colonized. And they can, of course, use the fact that they were born in that country to their advantage, right? But you can't just write off the fact that it's still the same people who are in power. It's still the same people who are maintaining a white lens of attractiveness and intelligence and beauty standards and cultural values and different things. Like That's all still very much in in the old world, even though it just seems like it's not. It's kind of like the difference between mayonnaise and aioli. Like they're just aioli. They're still mayonnaise. They just have a little bit, you know, a different taste, right? You're like, oh, it's it's not mayonnaise. It's like, okay, yeah, it is. <laughs> or, you know, Dijon and, and plain yellow mustard. Like it's still mustard. Like they're still mustard. Now, some things that are important that just happened. Um, Francia, I think her name is Francia Marquez. Yeah, Francia Marquez. She was just elected as the vice president of Colombia. Now, you should look her up. She is an Afro-Colombian woman. Now, if you when you look her up, because New York Times did a piece about her when she was elected, and you can look up the hashtag Francia Marquez with a Z at the end. She is a, again, Afro-Colombian. Now, Within Colombia, of course, her nationality is just Colombian because she was born there. Like she's not, she has no tie to any other country. Her family, you know, her, her family, they're from Colombia, right? Just like me and my family were from the United States. But when you look at her, her phenotype is firmly within the black phenotype. She has highly textured hair, like type four hair, what we consider type four hair. And she has very, and she has like dark skin, so she in you know she has the lips, the nose again, like she sits firmly within the phenotype of blackness, and she I also identifies as a afro Colombian like a black Colombian, so that's what I mean as far as like the representation that is a huge deal that she's the vice president as a woman, also right, but because she is clearly sits within the phenotype of blackness now. When it comes to how people handled these things in the colonial world, just to kind of go back, like I said, it did dictate what types of jobs you can have and things like that. There's plenty of literature about even things like midwifery. So like midwives, they're early forms of medicine. And I think especially as we get more toward holistic medicine and plant medicine today around the world, but especially in the Western world it's important to notice and to note historically that many of the people who practiced this early type of medicine were black and indigenous people, right? Because they did not have any other place to go. They couldn't go to medical schools. They couldn't go to formal medical programs to become midwives, right? Or to become doctors or you know, to study botany at a university. They had to learn it on their own through things that they passed down through their generations and passed down to each other because they were forced to work the land. So of course, they're going to have a more of a basic knowledge of what plants do and don't do, how you can cook with them, how to extract things from it, et cetera, at a, at a grassroots level. 
And when we look at holistic medicine today, there are, you know, we want to make sure to give the credit where it's due and also acknowledge that, you know, there are a lot of people who were prosecuted for having that knowledge because it was seen as beneath the very people whose descendants rely on it today because they're dying of opioid, they're dying of an opioid epidemic. So I just wanted to make that clear. Now, also in the colonial era, we also had the way that people would be characterized based on their phenotype. So like I just mentioned, Francia Marquez, right? That she sits from within the phenotype of a black person. She is Colombian nationally, racially, she's black. And her ethnicity, we would consider that to be Hispanic, Latina, right? So there we go. Um, They didn't have photographs. Well, excuse me, they did have photographs in the 19th century. But in the 17th century and for a lot of the 18th century, they didn't have access to photographs, right? So they had to rely on drawing people. And when you look at the way that they would draw people who were indigenous descended or black descended, it is very disrespectful. The same way it's disrespectful in the way that they would classify them. And the jobs that they did and didn't allow them to have, and the people who they did and didn't allow them to you know, live around or anything like that, it continues the culture of disrespect. And those types of things have lasting effects today in the 21st century because you have people who deny indigenous heritage or deny African heritage unless they feel like they can monetize it to use language that is reserved for certain groups or to get money in some way. But most of the people who are within these groups deny that type of parentage because there's a stigma in Latin America of being indigenous. And even in you know the United States and throughout the hemisphere, there's a stigma to being indigenous descended. There's a stigma to being African descended, especially if you can, like I said, pass for something else. So the way that they would draw these people was very telling because in some of the drawings, you can definitely tell that it's not that they drew them in like an extra caricature way, but that they drew them showing what their class would was generally relegated to. So when you see like native indigenous people drawn, they're often drawn outside or they're drawn not quite dressed like everybody else, right? To as a way to sort of other them in their society and to make the viewer know that this indigenous person is different than these other people. Like culturally values and they say a picture's worth a thousand words right we know that so it's the same way that they would classify and draw african people sometimes they would draw them in like you know especially if it was an upper class african family but generally speaking they're going to draw them doing something that is going to be in conflict especially in the new world as they want to stop interracial unions, interracial marriage, and interracial sex and parentage of children. Because like I said, in the early part, so from the late 1400s through 1650, they just let everybody do what they wanted to do as long as everything was recorded and written down and he was on file with the church. Like It was like, okay, that's your business. You're free. You can do what you want to do. With liberty, excuse me, with freedom came your liberty. By the middle of the 17th century, they're trying to restrict the liberty. But again, like it's been a long time since they did that. So they had to change social opinion. 
And a lot of these countries didn't have like formal segregation the way we did in the United States, which is also very interesting. But to kind of go back to what I was saying, so they had to change public opinion. So they can't say, oh, well, you can't marry someone who's indigenous now. They're not going to, they can't change the law. They can't say it's illegal to be mixed race because they have a bunch of people who are. But what they can, what well, the United States did that, but we'll talk about that later. But in these countries and throughout Latin America, they're not doing that. But what they do decide to do is say, oh, well, you know, now we're just going to make it um, taboo to marry an indigenous person. Now we're going to say, oh, well, if you marry an indigenous person, like you're going to be fighting with them all the time. Why would you want to marry someone who you're always going to fight with? You know, their culture, they're a violent people. You know, that's why we had to civilize them. And that's why we colonized them and brought them Christianity and Catholicism. Like, that's all part of the same mentality of why they were there in the first place. Like, to soothe these quote-unquote savage people. It's the same thing with what we're talking about with the, with the African-descended people. They also view their colonization of them, bringing them over as slave, as enslaved people, as part of their civilizing these savage people too, quote unquote, and that, again, they can't make it illegal to be black. They can't make it illegal to be married to someone who's black or to be biracial. They're not going to do that or multi-ethnic if you're mixed in with black, multi-racial, excuse me, not multi-ethnic, but they don't do that. So what they say is, oh, well, now if you marry a black person, you know, look, look at these black women. All they do is fight. So why would you want to marry a woman who's going to you know, fight you in the kitchen? And look at this screaming half-black kid. Do you want these you know, half-black children to grow up in a, an unstable household and to see their you know, violence between their parents? So they create this narrative that, that you know, black people are violent and that we are undesirable partners. And the same thing has happened in the United States with the media and with Hollywood. I don't know if it happens as much with indigenous people, and I'm sure it does, but I'm just not privy to that because we don't see many depictions of indigenous people anyway in mainstream media, but we do see a lot of depictions of black people and the descendants of the enslaved in America, right? So I'm not talking about people from Nigeria and from Tanzania and from South Africa. I'm talking about people from the United States, like my family's descendants, you know, ancestors who've been here for centuries. We see the way they're depicted in the media. And it's still very much a way of look at these people, look how violent they are, look how undesirable these women are based on their physicality, based on their cultural practices, things like that. So it's still very much the same agenda then and now throughout the whole hemisphere, whether you're in the Caribbean, South, um, South America, Central America, North America, it's the same thing. Because again, these are the same colonizing groups of people. And I think I mentioned in the last podcast, but because there was so much interaction between the different colonizing powers within the new world, so the biggest ones being the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French, the English, and the Dutch, because there's so much interaction between those five groups of people, with the exception of the Portuguese, because they only got Brazil. But the other four are constantly fighting it out, especially in the Caribbean. But not just the Caribbean, but also the mainland, what is now the U.S., right? Like our modern-day Louisiana and Florida used to belong to Spain. 
So that's important stuff, right? And then it switched over, Louisiana switched over as part of the territory to the French, and then it became, you know, it was purchased by the Americans. So like it became part of the United States. Like it changed hands three times. So that's why it's really cool when you look at cities like New Orleans. Like New Orleans changed hands three times. Or some of these Caribbean islands, they changed hands two or three times. So sometimes the names of the cities are still, you know, it may have a French name or it may have a Spanish name or maybe it has an English name or it's, you know, it's mixed. It's been changed. You have mixes of names. It's because it's just um, the hegemonic outcome of that cross, um, not cross contamination, but cross colonization. I guess it could be considered cross contamination, but cross colonization. So the same putting down of the indigenous and the black populations at the time and the descendants of those people even today still perpetuates itself and it's so entrenched in the society that people within those racial groups also perpetuated against each other right they rank each other based on european standards they rank other racial groups by european standards or their their proximity to that and that was the whole point of the racial caste system within the colonial era anyway. So I've been talking about this a lot. Like I could talk a lot more, but I'm going to make a third part later. I'll leave you off for now, but I hope you found it really interesting and I will see you on the next episode. Thanks as always for listening. Bye.